Hello, and welcome to Hang Time, a St. Michelle Wine Estates podcast where we hang with the exceptional people behind our incredible portfolio of wines. I'm Paul Asakainen, National Wine Educator, hanging here in Napa Valley. We created this podcast to feed your intellectual curiosity, whether you're behind the wheel, up in the air, or just thirsty for knowledge. For today's show, we wanted to focus on many of the new wines that fall under the Illicit Wine Project umbrella. Uh, I journeyed out to Eastern Washington to Columbia Crest Winery to meet with Reed Cly, head red winemaker for our innovation brands. Reed shared with me not only uh, his background, uh, but the treasure trove of ideas, hard work, and amazing results uh, that fuel the quality uh, inside each of these new wines. So without further ado, let's dive into the interview. Okay, well, we're here at uh, Columbia Crest Winery. We're here with Reed Cly, uh, head winemaker uh, here at Columbia Crest and in charge of the red wine division for uh, focusing on innovation. Is that right, Reed? Yes, yes. Kind of hitting uh, the old classics and then um, trying to head up some of this uh, new innovation we're doing here at Columbia Crest as well. Very cool. And you just got back from New Hampshire. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's fun hitting the road with these new these new products, seeing people's eyes light up when they see the the new labels and try out I bet. the new wines and hear the stories. Yeah. yeah. You know, we've been, you know, selling our heritage portfolio and our power brands for so long. It's great to be able to, you know, adjust and pivot and look at some new products and see the excitement behind them. Yeah. Too. Yeah. It's fresh. It's new. It's fun to talk about. Um, I, I love it. Yeah. Right on. Um, I did hear from uh, a little birdie that there is maybe some cross functionality going to be going on here as we go deeper into this innovation wormhole uh, in terms of the wines and how that they want the winemakers to kind of look at both sides, white and red, and not so be so divided. Yes. Uh, what, what is that kind of going to look like? Yes, a hard task at a place like this um, as we've grown and grown, uh, especially over the last five or six years since I've been here. It's a tendency to be a little more siloed into one side or the other. But with um, with Katie Nelson taking over, she's um, always pushing us to do new things and says if we, if we keep waiting for the perfect time to do it, it's never going to happen. So uh, we're taking the leap. Um, this July, our, um, our assistant winemakers are going to switch. Our assistant winemaker, Ashley, is going to head to the white side. Um, and then Steve Rothwell from the white side is going to head over here in July and spend a whole year on the other wow. side um, learning. You know, we all know textbook, other side, and we've tasted the other, other wines and everything. But to get in there and get dirty and, and see everything um, is, is super important. It's going to help us to become more innovation and get deeper into winemaking. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little about yourself. Uh, I think you're a Washingtonian, is that correct? I am. Yeah, one of, okay. One of the few born and raised here. Yeah, yes. not, a, not an import, not an imposter, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so tell us how you uh, arrived to not only St. Michelle and here at Columbia Crest, but uh, just in general, got your interest in to the winemaking side or just wine in general. So I guess if I had to, to write the autobiography of Reed Cly, um, it would start as a... A kid raised under pretty conservative parents. Uh, my parents didn't drink at all. My grandparents didn't drink at all. Um, always under the watchful thumb of, of my parents. So when I had the opportunity to jump and go to, to college, get under that out from under that thumb, I, I jumped at that and quickly learned the joys of alcohol and <laughs> spent a lot of my college career uh, partying, meeting friends, discovering life. Um, and then I mixed a little science in there as well. Okay. Um, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with my life. My dad was a science teacher, though. I was always drawn to science. I knew I wanted to do something in that field. 
started off thinking physical therapy because I'd always been into sports, um, but quickly found that wasn't uh, what I was destined to become. So I gravitated a little more towards biology. Um, environmental science was something that really spoke to me. Um, so I, I ended up getting a general biology degree, quickly figured out um, that doesn't set you up for much. <laughs> so like, what the heck am I going to do with this? Right. Um, I boomeranged back to my parents' house for a year and was working in grocery. And then um, my dad sat down with me one day and said, Reed, um, what do you what do you see yourself doing in life? What what the heck are you doing? <laughs> it's kind of a wake up call. He's trying to kick me out. So I started applying for some actual lab uh, science jobs. Um, it's a lot of weird weird uh, biology jobs out there. There was uh, I applied for making DNA down in Oregon, um, counting pelicans on the Yakima River, um, literally sitting in an inflatable raft with a clipboard. Um, counting <laughs> as pelicans were starting to immigrate back to the area, counting how many I saw each day. And luckily, there was a lab job opening at um, Snoqualmie Winery down the road. Um, and we have a good family friend that's uh, really into wine. And he said, hey, Reed, you should really think about applying for that. Wine is a big upcoming thing in Washington State. It was way back in 2005. But it was really coming to be um, here in Washington State. Um, so I applied. I got a harvest internship. I worked there there for a year, and I just loved um, like the team atmosphere. Everyone was working together. There's long hours, but it was fun. Um, were you working under Joy? I was working under Joy and, and my now boss, uh, Katie Nelson. Uh, Joy Anderson, of course, was the winemaker at Snoqualmie Winery for many years uh, and really helped pioneer the organic farming practices for St. Michelle. And, yeah, I worked one harvest there. Then they kicked me out after harvest. I worked a bunch of other lab jobs, like with dairy products and and fruit juices, and just wasn't the same feel as wine. Sure. Um, so a full-time lab job opened there. I applied. Uh, they hired me, um, and I got to learn the analytical side of winemaking, uh, which was really interesting to me. But then Katie let me make a batch of wine in the cellar one harvest. She gave me a couple hundred tons of, or a couple hundred pounds of some um, Cold Creek. Is it Primitivo and Zinfandel? Okay. Um, she gave me a garbage can and said, here you go. <laughs> so I made a small batch, really small batch in a garbage can, um, and it turned out really, really awful. <laughs> it gives a new meaning to the garagiste uh, winemaking uh, <laughs> yes, effort, right? Yes, yes. Very, uh, very garage. It turned out terrible, like so bitter and harsh you couldn't even <laughs> try it, but it fed that wine itch in me, um, right. and it kept kept me um, on the path ever since. I said, ah, oh, the... The vicious cycle of a winemaker, like, oh, what can I do next year to try it again? It's just that yearly cycle. You only get to make wine once a year, and you get to stew over it for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I applied for an enology job up here, and then got promoted to assistant, and then uh, winemaker last year. So Very cool. A long-winded well, trip through my We're career. glad you're still with us on the journey, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and back under the tutelage of, uh, yeah, <laughs> of Katie I'm Nelson, Katie right? Again. Yeah, it's been awesome full circle. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, uh, you know, all those, uh, you know, circumstances that brought you here uh, certainly uh, make you sound like uh, one of our target audience for some of these innovation wines and <laughs> yes. uh, the millennial taste buds, right? Yes. Uh, do you have a uh, specific wine that you tasted that was a little bit of an aha moment for you? Um, yeah, um, we'll get into some innovation stuff later, I assume, but um, innovation wines are the most challenging part of them is... I guess opening your mind a little bit, you get used to a certain style of wine, um, the wine everyone else is drinking, and there's 
you got to push your your limits and boundaries a little bit and taste these wines that are a little bit off the wall. Right. Um, and having Katie back here, she's she brings in all she's into all sorts of weird stuff. <laughs> she brings in all these all these wines from different areas, different styles. Yeah. Um, more, more so than one, even. Yes. Yes. Wow. She's uh, they're well, they're both. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Got their their different things they're into. Of course, Juan Munoz Oca, now vice president of winemaking and vineyards, uh, spent most of his career here at Columbia Crest and truly is a visionary when it comes to innovative winemaking. Yeah, just tasting. I don't know a specific one that really turned my mind around, but just tasting these different styles is really yeah. really important in helping in the journey towards innovation, I guess. So, you know, kind of leading into that uh, in terms of innovation, what do you think about in terms of that word and not necessarily of wine? What does innovation mean to you personally? Innovation in general is is going against the flow, um, trying to create something new, trying to create something against the norm. Um, and then if you get more into wine, like I was saying, there's these specific styles. And I was I was trained for 12, 13 years to for to make these fruit forward wines. Herbal was bad. Any green characters were bad. Um, you had to have a certain amount of oak and um. So innovation is trying to break up that cycle of the same wines that everyone's making. Not that there's anything wrong with the wines everyone's making. It just gets a little homogenous. Yes, yes. It's trying to Commodity push, based push almost, the envelope yeah. a little bit and, right. and come up with new, fresh ideas. Very cool. Yeah. And as it applies to, you know, you know, kind of thinking about uh, how we create these wines, you know, they start as some very clever ideas that are based in data and what the consumer is looking for, especially uh, certain segments of the consumer market. That's a huge focus uh, for the marketing team right now is, you know, really being driven by the consumer and not so much what we may think they want, but actually looking at what they want and what they're drinking. And, yeah. you know, I think, what what do you think is the hard part about, you know, taking wine and, you know, matching it to those ideas they have where, you know, sometimes it's so label driven and it's like, how do I match yeah. the flavors here to be somewhat creative to that process? Yeah, actually, I've been learning a lot of, of different ways innovation can come at you. There's very much uh, brand and marketing data coming to you. Um, hey, let's try to let's try to match up to a certain style, or or this even this certain product is selling so well. Can you guys make something in in this style almost to mimic these guys? And then there's the other half where we're constantly experimenting and coming up with new stuff. Um, we pitch it sometimes, and it, we're not in marketing by any means, right. <laughs> so it usually gets shot down. But it's kind of a mix of brand coming to us and us going to them with with new things. But yeah, how do, how do we go through that process? Well, the cool the cool thing about winemaking is it's passion driven. It's philosophy. It's a philosophy. Um, you can't sit down and come up with a one, step one through ten on how to make wine. There's no textbook of the correct way to do it. There's literally endless possibilities how to make wine if you, if you really break it down. Um, all the way to the vineyards, where the grapes grown, what kind of soil it's grown in, um, the clone, the variety, um, how many tons per acre you're going to hang, how much water you give it, uh, endless possibilities in the vineyard, what what trellis system, how many leaves you're leaving per shoot, and then you get to the winemaking side. Uh, when do I pick it? Uh, at what sugar level? What acid level? 
Um, do I machine pick it? Do I hand pick it? When I bring it into the winery, do I, um, how f quickly do I process it? On the white side, do I press it really hard? Do I press it light? Do I keep those separate from each other? At uh, what temperature? How long? How often do I mix it? On and on and on. Um, red side, again, do I destem it? Do I leave some stems on? Do I do a whole cluster? What temperature? Do I cold soak it for a while? What vessel am I going to ferment in? We have stainless, concrete, oak, clay. Uh, you get into oak, there's a million different possibilities. French oak, American oak, what forest it comes from, what Cooper toasted it. Right. I want to draw right. out the uh, permutations of <laughs> yes. the decisions. I could go made, on right? all day, all day. Yeah, right. It just doesn't end. <laughs> Thanks for cutting me off. Right. Well, I think, you know, in terms of those, those you know, decisions that have to be made, yes. you know, in my mind, it's, you know, uh, part of it, is it driven by, you know, how much the wine you have to make? Like, okay, this is going to be a 50,000 case production. This is going to be a 10,000 case production. I guess yes. that, that yes. helps dictate some of those. Yes. So... You have to first start on small batch. If you're going to really push the envelope, we start with one barrel and we go to a, a small barrel lot. We go to a small tank. And yeah, there is some limits to the size of the overall blend. And is those experiments, for lack of a better you know term, yeah, uh, are those perpetual that you know, when some of these, you know, innovation wines come to fruition mm -hmm. that you can say, Hey, you know, we were doing that like three, yes. two years ago, yep. uh, you know, experimenting with this style and this is what the result was. Yeah. And, yeah. So yeah, tell us exactly. about like some of the so record keepings and you know, how that yes. comes about and how's that shared? Because I know other departments, you know, may not have the freedom Mm -hmm. to just say, okay, I'm just going to go do this with uh, yes. this crazy idea with this fruit. And it may yes. not be worth anything afterwards. Uh -huh. So like the mm -hmm. ROI is more just the learning process, if you want to yes. talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and that's that's what I was getting into a little bit with those endless possibilities. You, you look at all of those and you say, where can I interject to steer the wine into a totally new direction? What can I do different that everyone else is doing the same? Um, so that's where we really break the wine down on a timeline of all those parameters and we look at the end goal this is the wine we want to come up with this is the style and then we kind of work backwards from there okay intrinsic we want no oak but we want to have these really cool resolved tannins um, how do we do that so we go back through the timeline we cut out the oak we say, oh, we're going to do it in stainless. We're going to do it in concrete. And then when we decide we want to do it extended mass, extreme extended maceration, um, then we start looking at fruit sourcing. What can we bring in at the very end of harvest that has the longest hang time that can go in these tanks because they're going to eat up a tank for nine months now. Sure. So you're, you're going through this process, picking out all the little different parameters to try to m meet this end goal. Um, and a lot of it's an educated guess. Um, a lot of it has to do with past experiences, like you're saying, oh, let me think of these experiments I've done. And we have um, notebooks and files of our old experiments that we've been working on. We, we'll thumb through those and we'll sit down as a team and, and kind of go through what can we do to come up with the, this mouthfeel or this style that we're going through. And luckily we have a great team of people um, that we can, we can ask and sit down with and come up with different styles. Since I've been working here, I've been here for 15 years now. I don't even know how many hundreds of experiments we've done. Harvest is a, you know, there's a million different experiments going on all the time. And so you go through these notes and, and you try to recall 
everything you've done and apply it to a new philosophy and a new wine. Do you, do you get the sense that we are unique in that ability that uh, our, you know, St. Michelle lets us yeah. do those experiences? Yeah, because, we work for... You know, there's other yes. companies out there that say, okay, here's your recipe, you're making this. Even if a new wine comes out, it's like, okay, it has to be this and this and this. And there might not be that opportunity from historical data that you've gathered from those experiments. Yes. So um, talk about the uniqueness of that and, you know, where does that come from? Is that just pure creativity or is there just a kind of a carte blanche kind of attitude? Like, hey, you know what? We entrust you to make these, you know, qualified decisions and experiment because they might be useful later on. That's, is that the mentality? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're so, so fortunate to work at this company. Um, I see it as very unique that we're able to do this kind of stuff. I talk to um, some of my friends in the wine industry that work at small wineries and, and tell them some of the stuff we're doing and they're just super jealous is one good word for it. <laughs> I say, wow, I can't, I can't imagine being able to, just say, hey, let's throw some grapes in a tank for nine months and see what happens, you right. know. Because um, in a small winery, it's just not possible. Um, every drop matters. And if, if you were to screw something up, you know, the financial impact would, <laughs> impact. Be, uh, would be high. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, yes, um, since day one when I've been here, um, Juan and now Katie have just pushed, 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 pushed um, us to, to try new things. Um, the company gives us the funding to... Let's buy a tiny little half-ton pyramid-shaped concrete tank to see what it does with wine for ten thousand bucks. Right. Okay, here you go. You know, um, and if that tr works out okay, then like here's three more. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we definitely start small and get it approved okay. budget-wise. But then um, if we prove that it's something that's going to work for us, um, the funding's there, and the um, they say as long as you're making good wines and, and pushing the envelope and coming up with something new, right? Go for it. That's yeah. ex that's super exciting. I think yeah. uh, a lot of folks will be, you know, very encouraged to hear that. And you know, it's it's definitely not the norm. So yeah, very cool. Are there any challenges to that process that you know, and pitfalls that uh, that come from? I don't know if it's a distraction of like keeping the eye on the ball and, you know, that, Hey, let's go do this. Yeah. And that's what you get excited about. And that it kind of, you know, it takes, what, uh, yes, you have to be very, very organized. I was saying when I first started working here, there was a few innovations, things going on, but every year there's more and more and more. We can see the, the cellar from where we're sitting right now. It used to be Grand Estate and H3 was all that was in all of these tanks out here during harvest. Um, and now we have Grand Estates, H3, Born of Fire, Prayers, uh, Intrinsic. Like you'll walk through the cellar and each tank will have unique set of grapes, a very unique winemaking style going on in it. And it's super exciting and super cool. But yes, it's challenging to keep them all straight. Um, <laughs> a lot of them are coming in at the same time. Right. Um, so you have to have a, a good set of notes. Um, a great boss that's reminding you all the time, hey, did you remember <laughs> right. that this is coming in today? Um, so, yes, organization is hard. Like I said, breaking out of breaking out of the tradition is hard sometimes. Like I said, your palate's trained in one way and, and to, like, free up your mind to, to push stuff in different ways is always a constant struggle, I but fun at it, the same time. I would imagine it also makes the, uh, the effort of tasting uh, much more time consuming yes. when you having to taste all these new wines yes. and different techniques and trials and blends and, you know, unique. Yes. Concoctions, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then, um, to create new wines in the future, you don't know what's going to come up. So we're always just, there's 20 tanks of stuff that 
don't have a program yet, but they're really unique styles, and we keep those separate in case brand comes to us with, hey, can you create a new wine for us? Like, yeah, we already have 10 things ready to go. What do you want? Right. <laughs> yeah. Just so there's, uh, we touch on some of the some of the new wines. I mean, Intrinsic now is, you know, in its, I guess, fourth year? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Red Blend, obviously, uh, a couple years younger than that. Let's talk a little about that. I know that there's uh, some effort, some big push this part of the year uh, to f- showcase that wine. Uh, yeah. You know, I think specifically, I think most people understand that what the blend is and the extended maceration, but maybe exactly what that does to the wine uh, and that process in terms yeah. of tannin formation and mm-hmm. actually, mm-hmm. I guess, disintegration at that point, too. <laughs> yeah. To walk the process backwards, um, we said we want to make this these wines that showcase Washington wines in the raw. Um, and we say, well, everyone talks about their unique terroir and how unique their grapes are, their area are, their vineyard is. And you make the wine, and it's very unique in the tank, but then you put it in oak. Everyone puts it in that those same oak barrels and lets them age, and it kind of brings everything together, uh, more everything to a more common place, kind of washes out some of the nuances, mm-hmm. per se. So we thought, well, let's get rid of that oak and keep those fresh, um, unique styles in the in the grapes we're making. So what, do oak, what does oak do? It interjects oak flavors. Uh, and it mostly it, it resolves tannins. Um, so we thought, how can we do that? Well, you can do it in a more unnatural way of doing micro-ox where you're in, injecting oxygen into the tank. We're pretty natural around here. It kind of goes against some of our philosophies of interjecting like that. So we thought, well, what's a better way? We can use concrete. Uh, concrete, concrete breathes like a barrel, um, retains a lot of freshness. The limit to that is concrete vessels are really small and really expensive uh, and heavy and very heavy to move around. <laughs> yes. We've had to hire companies to move small tanks for us because we can't physically move them. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so the bigger way to, to resolve tannins on a bigger scale is through this extended maceration. And what that does is as the skin sit in solution with the wine, the, the tannins are starting to form uh, longer chains of tannins those chains start falling out of solution um, over time, and then the, the tannins kind of resolve themselves in tank and, and smooth out over time. Um, it's a little nerve-wracking during those nine months because it'll get extremely tannic before mm. it starts smoothing out. Um, right. But just My God, me. I've ruined it. <laughs> yeah, what, what <laughs> happened? <laughs> then you come back tomorrow and everything's okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, in terms of uh, some of the other wines is, you know, that's have a use of like a, a certain technique. Um, yes. Let's talk about swapping the skins a little bit because I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And that's one of the newer components yes. of the red blend. And then on the red blend specifically, yes. Yeah. Um, so the thought behind swapping skins, um, Juan always calls it the peanut butter and the jelly. It's the Cab Franc and the Malbec. Malbec is the jelly. Um, it's super aromatic, super inky and dark, uh, vibrant, but it doesn't have a lot of interesting um, characteristic to it. It doesn't have a lot of tannins. It can be one-dimensional in a way. Um, and then Cab Franc, on the other hand, is the peanut butter. It's got the texture. It's got the, the tannin content. It doesn't got a lot of color, though. It doesn't have a, a ton of fruit. It's more on the herbal side. Um, so we guess we say what the Malbec is missing, the Cab Franc has. So we said, 
let's swap them and um, extract the best out of both worlds for, for both tanks. So when we crush the um, grapes in the tank, we let them sit for a day, and then we drain all the juice out of both tanks and then and pump it into the other tank um, so they can extract the best of both worlds as they're... But you're not pressing anything on. at that point? No. Okay, it's nope. just, there's still a little juice in those skins. There's a skins, tiny bit of, of juice, yeah, okay. yes, yes. Wine tracking hates us for <laughs> trying to track how much juice is actually, <laughs> actually in there. Actually, right, right, right. Oh, gosh, yeah. you know. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it all mostly goes together. So. Right. <laughs> well, that's great. And, and so far, so good, pleased with the uh, the results of uh, that yeah. technique? Yeah, yeah, it's worked really well. Um, again, everything's learning curve. Um, so every year we're learning a new little tricks yeah. to the percentages we're putting in with each other. But um yeah. Yeah, I love the wine. Nice. I, I think the, the fruit style, the flavors is interesting. Yeah. Um, it's not all the same kind of blueberry, blackberry. It's more pomegranate. And, you know, what other kind of flavors do you get? And maybe even some fig, you know, that I get out of those wines. Yeah. And like you're saying, these are this is the raw essence of this Washington State fruit. There's no oak to hide anything. Mm-hmm. So it, it is what it is. And you can't you really do. hide your mistakes. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. So you do get um, some nice floral notes in there. Nothing's overpowering, but it's just another layer. It's really unique. Um, floral, herbal, Cab Franc always gives like a graphite uh, mm-hmm. under undertone to it. Um, but then, yeah, you're getting some blueberry from the Malbec, um, some some red fruit, some pomegranate, some red currant. They just they just play really nicely together mm-hmm. with each other. Very cool. Yeah. Do you see that that fresh style that still has good mouthfeel is the trend? in specifically the innovation wines, but even for some of our heritage wines, it's kind of turning that corner a little bit and maybe backing off the oak. Is that something we're kind of toying with or is? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll say even with our traditional brands here, they're starting to freshen up a little bit. Um, I think the overall trend in the industry is, is less oak in general. Drinkability. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> There's definitely a crowd Food friendly loves you know, aperitivo oak, wine. Right. Yeah. Um, I think, Freshness is a, a style change, especially for younger drinkers getting into. Yeah, I remember my first glass of Cabernet when I was going to ask which I, wine was uh, your never, first. You know, I had never drinking wine before I got that lab job, and I I drank a Snoqualmie Reserve mm-hmm. Cabernet, and I was like, man, this. Is, why does anybody want something that tastes like wood? <laughs> okay, boomer. So, yeah. So to get a uh, to get the new fresh audience in, I think. Um, the fresh style is is really attracting a new crowd. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about vineyards a little bit. You know, obviously one of our big success wines has been Born of Fire, and mm-hmm. uh, you know the the new pending still AVA the Burn, which I think for all intents and purposes is going to get approved soon, uh, sooner than later. That wine certainly has done quite well, not only, you know, from a consumer perspective, but also scoring well as well. Could you talk about, you know, that area and how it translates into some of the winemaking that goes into Born of Fire? So the Burn, the uh, Chapman Creek is the name of the vineyard, um, but it's the only vineyard in in the Burn. So we're sitting in Patterson, Washington right now. Uh, The Burn is another about hour, hour and a half west of here along the Columbia River, along the Washington, Oregon border. Uh, the closer you start getting to the coastline, of course, the more rain you're going to get, the cooler the weather is. And then um, there's more clay content in the soils as you get up there, too. It's a little um, more water holding yes. capacity. So it's cooler, you're getting more rain, and you're getting more water retention in the soil. Um, so it's a super unique site, especially for Cabernet. 
Um, most of the Cabernet in the state is planted in the very hottest areas you can find to come right. up with the traditional, very ripe fruit forward. Our Cabernet. opulence. Yes. Tannic. Yes. Yeah, right. So again, to break that tradition and come up with the innovative brand and innovation, uh, innovative area, uh, is been really cool to watch from the planting until, uh, I guess we're on our third vintage right now. Oh, just bottled this week. Yeah. 2018 just oh, bottled wow. this week. Yeah. You talk about, again, the, the steps of coming up with the uh, wine at the end of the day. A lot of times you go to the end, the final product, and work your way backwards. The Born of Fire started at the, f- at the start, and then we came up with a, a unique place to, to grow the grapes. And then we said, well, let's f- see what Mother Nature gives us. And that first crop in 2016 came out. It was really light in weight, uh, really elegant, beautiful aromatics, but with a little bit of a herbal edge to it. Um, and we really loved it. So we decided, okay, working forward here, how do we retain this really light, uh, elegant, beautiful cab without washing it out? So um, the, the fruit itself coming right off the vine begged to yes. not be oaked. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we're like, okay, we're going to use all large format. Uh, we're using Hungarian oak only in okay. this blend, um, something we've experimented with before and wasn't a great match for some of our more big fruit forward style of wines. Um, Hungarian oak is adds aromatics, but no tannins. Um, it's really tightly grained, mm. but we use large format of it of that as well. So su- subtlety. Very subtle. Yeah. Yes. And um, it's, to me, Hungarian oak tends to sometimes have a little bit of a spice to it. Yes. Uh, a spiciness, yep. I guess. Yeah. Yep. Aromatics, a little spiciness mm. and, and no tannins, which is great. Great. Um, so that matched that style of fruit really well. The beauty about doing all this innovation is you can steal techniques from some of the other wines. Um, so this extended maceration we've been using in intrinsic mm-hmm. matches up really well for the Born of Fire. So we've been leaving not nine months, but we've been <laughs> pushing it crazy to, here, yeah, right. <laughs> about 30 days, 24 days on skins. Okay. Um, um, so we can build a little bit of body. So eight, eight to 10 it. extra days. Yeah. Give or take. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we're extracting a little more tannin. So we love the elegance, but we want somebody in there as well. Extra too. little elbow <laughs> yeah. of uh, power there. Yeah. <laughs> so we just, you know, you kind of listen to the grapes and mother nature sure. and, and then build your innovation forward instead of backwards in that regard. Now, from what I understand of the burn, also that specific site, um, because of the water holding capacity, uh, we have a little longer hang time. Yes. And it browns up the stems a little bit. Uh, Yes. Tell us what we do with those stems. Even uh, more, yes. To get some uh, different (laughs) notes. Yeah. So again, a super unique part of this is we're usually done picking cab by the end of October here in Washington. Um, And with the cooler site of the burn, um, we don't pick until the second week of November out there. Oh, wow. Um, so it's quite a difference in, in how long it's hanging out there. And the greatest part is it can hang without accumulating sugar, which is every winemaker's dream. Because at some point, you have to just pick the fruit because it's getting too much sugar and it's going to have too much alcohol. Right. With, with this area, you can just let it hang out and it's getting super complex and all these different layers, um, getting slowly ripe but not overripe and you can pick them when it's still elegant um and yeah um so and then to the the stems and the rachises they do brown up as they're hanging out for a very long time um so some of the bitter tannins the reason you 
you take the stems away from the grapes in general, it's because they have a bitter tannin in them. Um, but as the as they harden up, some of those bitter tannins go away. Um, the tannins are more approachable. So yes, about uh, I'd say about a quarter of the grapes we pick for the Born of Fire, we leave a whole cluster, uh, oh, wow. put them right in the tank, extract those those nice stem tannins that aren't too harsh, um, and again add another layer to the to the mix of the Born of Fire. Yeah, because typically with Cabernet, you don't do that because there's always that little bit of pyrazine green component to Cabernet anyway. So yes. you add on to that. I mean, obviously we do some whole cluster for Pinot Noir, um, you know, not only California, but I think a little bit in Oregon. And then mm. also Syrah, Syrah uh, is another. 10, 12, and is that, is, is the Syrah can handle that because it's such a robust, big, intense fruit profile? Yeah, and it's so much more ripe that yeah. it can it can handle, you know, it, it, adding it adds a that little layer to it. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I say there's no there's no textbook for how to make wine, but if there was, one of the rules would be no stems and cabernet. Right. So <laughs> we are I'll we make, are I'll breaking that one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, just quickly, briefly, I'll, I'll we'll throw you the white question of because it's the new wine this year is the Born of Fire Chardonnay. Yes. And uh, tell us, you know, how it is similar, dissimilar in terms of the growing season for Chardonnay. Obviously, you know, a little bit higher water capacity mm -hmm. um, and how that mm -hmm. affects Chardonnay as well as we said it's a little bit cooler. Yes. Um, obviously that's a good thing um, yes. for Chardonnay specifically but uh, if you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah again uh, Chardonnay much more elegant than the rest of the Chardonnay we, we traditionally make here. Um, it's picking very late into October uh, the time where um, so <laughs> I have to <laughs> rewind a little bit the, the white team especially loves innovation wines because we have the liquid light now that ruins their Labor Day because they're right. picking in September. And then they have Born of Fire that is picking um, almost into November. Uh -huh. So the white harvest is now longer by about a month, which is only fair. But it's exciting, right? The red guys have to stay out there longer. You know, it's, it's all fair, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, this Chardonnay hangs out really late. Um, it's very elegant. Um and it has a really cool mineral element to it. Um, we pick it really dirty, um, like we're saying with stems. We pick a bunch of stems. Yeah, you're there. gonna have to explain that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> dirty. How do I say? Usually, when you're when you're harvesting the grapes, you can set the harvester to pick clean, like get rid of any green, any mog matter other than grapes sure. in there. Um, we tell them to loosen up their parameters a little bit. Um, go ahead and bring some canes and stems and, and all sorts of whatever you can find in in the bins. <laughs> it gives it kind of a rustic feel to it. Um, and the the mouth feel in the Born of Fire shard is what really sets it apart. It has this really cool mineral element to it. And I think that comes from, again, those soils and then from picking... Uh, dirty yeah. as well as we say. It, that's you know something that I think lots of people listening to that would be like, what? You can't, yeah, all that, that we're we're only talking about optically sorted fruit <laughs> and perfection, yes. and you know. Yes. But there's a limit to that. I mean, that's the, mm -hmm. that that strips some character from what the vineyard's giving yeah, you. Yeah, it's I, I, too pure right. in a way. Yeah, almost European, perhaps, yes, is the way yes. we're picking that fruit. Yeah, it's the uh, winemakers are never happy. Like you say, we get an optical sorter, we get everything and so we go clean, and we're like, no, we don't like that anymore. Let's go to dirty. <laughs> yes, 
And well, that's a wordsmith, dirty, <laughs> right? <laughs> and dirty actually is dirt. The, yeah. It's really, really, really windy up there. And then okay. comboed with the rain, the dirt sticks to the side of the grapes. Yeah. And that juice coming off of the, the shard when we're pressing it is brown wow. on a lot of the loads. And that dirt in there is, again, adding another layer, a layer natural layer that... Mother Nature gave us. I'm so okay it's, with that. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And then post that, you know, the the, the vineyard and the you know harvesting process, um, what's the fermentation like? And for that to preserve some of those flavors and not like again just say okay, well now we're going to just do full full on you know yes. oak fermentation yes. and you know get rid of all that nuance. Uh huh. Retention is the hardest thing. You get all these cool um, characteristics in that fermenter, and how do you keep it? The best way is stainless steel can get a little tanky per se if you do try to do 100% stainless steel. So um, they are using some large oak oval. I don't know a better way to explain them. They kind of, I don't know, they look like an egg, a long egg, I guess. Okay. <laughs> um, so horizontal orientation. <laughs> yes. Orientation. Okay. Yes. Um, they hold, what is the gallons? I think like 240 gallons. Okay. It's like a four barrel. Yeah. So not enormous. It's not yeah. Enormous. yeah. Okay. So it's imparting new oak, but not a lot. Okay. Um, and then we use a lot of um, older oak and a lot of stainless as well to try to retain as much of that nuance of the vineyard as we can. Right. Uh, so the last wine, uh, since you brought it up, we'll have to go there, is the liquid light. Uh, yes. That's just hitting the market uh, pretty much now. Uh, yes. Some markets have 18. Some just got the 19 in. Yes. Uh, so that's exciting. exciting. Um, I actually cracked open a couple of bottles uh for uh the chiefs game last weekend nice uh, so uh, oh, that tradition was nice now you have to open it i know it has, that's right it's it's <laughs> it's apparently becoming my super bowl wine uh yes. i don't know if it'll be the celebratory wine but uh <laughs> certainly uh in the early parts of, of the game uh we can enjoy that for sure talk a little bit about you know where we're going with that in terms of you know retention of acidity and how we're making it you know that really bright crisp style and how that's a departure from some of the other Sauvignon Blancs that, you know, most of us have tasted from Washington in the past. Yes. Again, the, the breaking the tradition. Um, Sauv Blanc in Washington was supposed to be different from New Zealand in that it didn't have a lot of grassy, didn't have a lot of acidity. We let it get really ripe, um, fruit forward, Washington style, right? Um, New World style. But with the, with the liquid light, again, Labor Day is ruined now. Um, they're picking, uh, I think some of it came in as early as like the 20th of September last year. Wow. So um, really, really early. So How it, does that compare with like uh, grapes for like DSM, Domaine Saint-Michel? Uh, it's about the same time frame. About the same time. Yep. Okay. So yep. almost it to could make be like the base, base wine for yep. sparkling. Yep. Okay. Yep. I think that's a good good point to note that there's... Yeah. That's that's a key selling point, I think. Is yeah, that, you know, we're bringing these grapes in so mm -hmm. early to really preserve that really fresh acidity. Yes, and you fruit selection, uh, picking the right vineyard, the right grower that's gonna be able to have fruit that delivers mm. at that low of of sugar and at where that high of alcohol is hard to do. Where are you finding, uh, you know, in terms of specific AVAs or certain vineyards that you're working with, where that fruit's coming from? Yeah, so um, it's two-thirds from the Horse Heaven, um, actually both of the first two years. It's a pretty unique part of Horse Heaven. It's right across the street from the winery here. It's a cooler spot of the Horse Heaven. So the further west in the Horse Heavens you go, the, the hotter 
it gets. So it's a pretty cool site here. It's picked at a pH of um, sometimes 2.99, you know, really acidic. Yeah. You know, you can't make the whole blend that way. So it's about 20% of the blend is picked really, uh, really early like that. But it has this beautiful acidity. Um, Not a lot of green to it. Um, But it has. I think when we say, you know, New Zealand, everybody thinks, oh, it tastes like jalapeno. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't at all, you know. Yeah. And like you're talking about the, the sparkling, you have to. You have to pick in sparkling it anything any flaw gets accentuated by that carbonation mm-hmm. um, so same with this if you're going to pick it that early it can't have any of those flaws it has to be beautiful perfect fruit that's not gonna showcase yeah jalapeno or or super grassy yeah. i guess um so you get a little bit of the grass in the sure liquid well it's the nature of the grape but it's mostly you know it's a lot of melon and and grapefruit and and lime and has a lot of cool fruit descriptors, uh, fresh, acidic, but not too acidic, mm-hmm. um, enough to uh, a little mouth-watering sensation in there. Um, I think it's great for a, a hot summer day. Yeah, it certainly hits all the marks for me. I mean, it's, yeah. it's got some of those, you know, delicious characteristics mm-hmm. to it that you don't take out just by being too high acid and too steely. Yeah. Uh, that's that's what I really liked about it. Yep. Very and then cool. the, the trick is picking and making 20 different styles of Sauvignon Blanc that you can then back blend into the really acidic and and balance it out really nicely. What else is going on in terms of innovation, in terms of some of the equipment you are getting in? And we talked a little bit about barrels and, uh, you know, tanks and concrete, but uh, I've heard that we're investing in a new type of barrel that is not for fermentation per se. Yes. So could you talk a little bit about that? You're on the ends. You know what's going on here. (laughs) Grab these emails out of the, uh, out of the ether. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. It's a never ending barrage of innovation around here. Um, We just put in a brand new reserve slash innovation seller. Um, I don't think you've even seen it yet. I have not. Show you after this. Perfect. Um, We walled off a section of our reserve room and we put in a row of, New concrete tanks, new concrete-shaped tanks, um, uh, a couple new oak tanks. I don't know. There's all sorts of stuff over there. But, yeah, the the concrete barrels is the the newest thing we're going into. We talked earlier about how this company gives you the means and the the push to be innovative. Five years ago, we bought what's called a new barrel, NU barrel, um, and it's made out of concrete. It's the size – it has – the same holding capacity as for a four-barrel rack, but it's a small square tank. Okay. Um, you can stack them up to four high. I don't know how many feet in the air that is, <laughs> but it's kind of scary looking if you stand next to it. It's impo- um, imposing. <laughs> yes. Right. We started with one of those. We really liked it. Uh, we went up to two the next year. Um, and these things, they're costing uh, six grand for each one. So it's, it's a healthy investment. Um, I mean, that's more than buying four barrels. Yes, for sure. For sure. Yeah. We got really comfortable with them. We love them. Um, and this year we ordered 132 of them. Wow. And we're going to go up to well over 300 within the next two years. Uh, we're going to be the biggest buyer of these in the nation, in the world, I believe. And it just goes to show that. How cool, how cool it is to work here that we can right. do that. We're, we're I don't even want to do that math. <laughs> yeah, we're putting that expense That's, that's above my pay grade <laughs> to work on numbers that big. Yeah, so <laughs> you talk about the parameters when you're done fermenting. 
where you put the wine to age and there's not great option for concrete there's these really small 1000 gallon tanks is the biggest you can get to in concrete um but now we have with these barrels made out of concrete we have a you know if we keep expanding that we can hold as much as we want in concrete now um it retains freshness it reduces the wine a little bit which is cool in in a layering and and blending perspective but it just retains freshness you try to the other way to do it is in in older neutral barrels but they're always imparting a little flavor you have the Mm. brett that can sneak in there you can get oxidized you have to top them because it's evaporating all the time faster rate yeah yes with these concretes you fill them up you seal them up and they create a vacuum if you go there's a sample valve on them you go to try to get wine out of them, no wine comes out because there's a vacuum in there. Oh, you wow. have to go pop the top, and then all of a sudden all the wine starts shooting out. <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> but, a process. Yeah. So um, it's great. We're just we're uh, stacking them up in the cellar right now, and we're going to fill our first round of them on a bigger scale um, next week. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, I, guess, I mean, in terms of the investment, that allows you to not have to then perpetually – transfer barrels from new to then once used to second time, third time. Yep. And, okay. Yeah. So there's reducing a, a barrel investment. I mean, but I guess these wines yeah, are they're indefinite is the sales point. Like sure. every seven or eight years you have to get rid of barrels and get new barrels and sure. keep replacing. And yeah, but, um, concrete is 40, 50 years. They're supposed to last at yeah. least if not forever, you know, in case you drop them and break them or something. Right. Um, so there's the monetary, there's the um, environmental aspect of it. Instead of cutting down all these trees, um, you have these. It's a great point. Yeah, you have these concrete barrels that you're not having to replenish every year. You're just reusing them over and over and over. I, I wonder if that can be added to a uh, sustainability perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I, like that. I like that a lot. I mean, and these wines that we're using with this program, they're not oak driven wines in the first place you yeah know, they're they're meant to, typically those wines that are i'm assuming you're using is the fresher style anyway mm-hmm. so you're not looking to that's why you're using you know close to neutral barrels for some of these anyway and so you're avoiding brett and all those other qualities yeah yeah, yeah they're healthier in general and like i say stealing stealing from one other brand's ideas and putting them into others sure um this was originally for intrinsic as five to 10% of the blend. And again, we've been having trouble keeping up with that five to 10 as, as intrinsic is, has gone crazy lately. Um, so this helps keep up with that demand, but then we're sneaking it into other, other products as well. Okay. I don't know if you want to get into the new altered dimensions at all. Sure. Um, Uh, Yeah. Go for it. I mean, our take on that was how many ways can we alter the dimension of Cabernet? What, what styles, what what styles, can we do to create as many unique dimensions of Cabernet as possible, put them together into one wine and concrete is one of those, one of those who are still in concrete from that where it's kind of, I say it's the mix of all these new innovation wines. There's extended maceration going in there. There's concrete, there's dirty stemmy wine going in there. Um, We put a little bit of the burn in there. Okay. We snuck a tiny bit of reserve wine in there. <laughs> Don't tell accounting that. <laughs> That's all right. Um, and then we put um, altered dimensions is non-vintage, so we can um, put a healthy amount of new, fresh 
wine in there as well. Touch on that a little bit. I, I think that's sometimes a concern uh, of the sales team and, you know, is that, oh my gosh, this wine is not vintage. How does, how are we going to sell yeah. that? Talk a little bit about where the advantages come in to non-vintage wine and, and also the percentage. I think the cons, you know, sometimes people think, oh, you know, it's, it's, three different years or <laughs> how old is the oldest yes. wine in there? You know, it's not a Sherry Solera system here. I mean, yes, you know, to, right? uh, yeah, <laughs> to break people's perception. Yeah. If you see that, it's like, Oh, it's old wine that you're trying to get rid of, but no, it's a purposefully made wine. So this, this first bottling is 16, 17 and 18, three wildly different vintages. Uh, you talk about creating a consistent style. There's no better way to do that than with, on vintage because you can play off the best of each vintage right 16 was a a stellar year um it was warm it was consistent 17 was colder less ripe fruit but beautiful acidity and then 18 i think 18 was one of the the best years we've had in a long time fresh fruit forward great body we're talking about we're just bottling now or we just bottled a few months ago the some of the altered dimensions um if you were to bottle 18 that early at 100% 2018, it's not ready yet. It's not, the tannins haven't come down enough. It's not integrated enough with the oak to be drinkable that, that early. But if you put like 10, 15% in with the older wine, then it becomes a new thing. It freshens it up, but the tannins aren't so bad because they're softened out with right. the older vintage. And it's bringing you another dimension. Another dimension, That's right. yes. Very cool, yeah. very cool. Um, Lastly, uh, what are we what are we uh, thinking about? You know, some of the new packaging and uh, you know alternative packaging other than you know the glass bottle. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I know that's we've put a lot of investment into cans. Obviously, yeah. um, there's the new aluminum bottles coming. What's your personal take on on? I mean, I know it's it's becoming popular. It's obviously a huge segment of the market. But from yeah. a winemaker's perspective, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, breaking down perception again of, of bag in a box and of, of cans. Um, the old traditional wine drinker is going to think, oh, that's cheap just because I have it in my head. But these are the same wines we're, we're bottling as well. We're, put, we're just putting them into cans now. Um, right. To go back to your what are the challenges of innovation, um, some of these new packages are very, very, very challenging. It's been a, a big learning curve to, to perfect the can. Um, to get the liner, every I, what I learned, there's a tiny, tiny, thin layer of liner inside mm -hmm. of a can that I, I didn't know before. Um, right. Stuff you don't know as a winemaker because you've been dealing with glass forever. Yep. It expires within a certain amount of time where, where a bottle doesn't. So the hardships on demand planning and bottling year, or canning year-round um, instead of in a bottling run, you do the whole vintage at one time, canning year. Yeah, doing it every about, two yeah. months to, to feed the market. Um, the, the, the born on date. Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, pretty much. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the packaging is super exciting. Um, I was at a hockey game on Saturday and there's uh, the 14 hands canned wine sitting in there next to the Budweiser and the seltzers and, yep. and people are grabbing a can and taking it back to their seat, something they wouldn't have done before. You never saw, many wine drinkers at those occasions and then out at a concert or going camping or it makes it more portable, more accessible, um, and recyclable and recyclable lighter and right. crushing. Again, back to the sustainable yeah. thing. Yes. And, you know, I think, you know, there's, 
certain segments of the market, of course, millennials have fully embraced that package. Yep. Um, and I think uh, it's going to continue that trend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there's certainly so much use for it uh, in so many different venues that are bringing, like you said, people that would have never drank wine at a hockey game. Yeah. Like sitting there waiting for, you know, two guys to go at it on the ice. And <laughs> yeah. then, you know, you're like, ah, you're cheering <laughs> and you've got a can of wine in your hand, right? And yeah. You, typically that was, is, is not, and is not the case, but you know, we also have to fully admit that the hard seltzer, the, the sparkling seltzers out there, yeah. um, they're in cans, you know, yeah. um, we have to compete with that. And so there is a, symbiotic relationship i think now with these options you know and if you give somebody an option of wine you know they might be more inclined than having to drag a bottle or you know even a half bottle or some other vessel i think it makes it very approachable i think that's a good thing so yes very cool yeah and then um down to the to the label the new labels Mm. i was just pouring wine in new hampshire at an event and people walk by and they look over and they see the intrinsic label, the Born of Fire, the New Prayers label. Yep. And they're instantly there. They look and then they look away and then their heads turn back again. And then they, you see them, they come over and they're like, what's, what's this? I, those labels are really cool. And you tell them the story of the label and the wine. Yep. It's so important for, for bringing people in initially. Um, and something I think we missed, missed the boat on. With Maybe in the past. Some, yeah, yeah, in the past. And I'm, I'm really excited that we're pushing the limits now. Um, and it's, it's you know, and the, the challenge is that it doesn't become the gimmick. And it's yes. just the label because yes. you're never going to sell a second bottle if yep. what's in there isn't, you know, going to wow you. Yep. Sells yeah. them the first bottle and then what's Correct. inside and keeps them coming yep. back. Yep. That's great. I mean, and that's, that's really what it wraps up this whole talk we've had is that it's the yin and the yang, right? Yep. You have to do the research and the data mining to really – see what's the trends are and you know all those things that marketing does so well but we have to match that up in the seller you guys work Mm -hmm. your magic that and that's kind of the the whole thought process i had with talking to you today is is taking the ideas that are generated by okay we're going to make this bottle and it's going to be a really cool label but if we don't put something really cool into it here at the winery the whole thing just collapses yes and so it's it impresses me I think it impresses a lot of our, you know, internal people. But I think the message here is that, you know, we are only as good as the wine we make. And that's still so important to this company. And um, the the opportunities that you and the whole winemaking staff are given to experiment and to innovate here um, are even maybe more so than what even goes to the label sometimes. It's just, you know, it, it takes so much effort to create to create the product that's in there uh, and and make it delicious. Yeah, yeah, and we're we're thankful for this new illicit wine project with these new labels that make the wine exciting too, yeah. and then vice versa, the labels that get people in to try this new exciting wine. Yeah, they play off each other, and it's it's exciting to go out and pour and, and see the response from absolutely from consumers. Absolutely. Well, it makes all of our jobs easier when when what's in the bottle is is fantastic juice. (laughs) So uh, we thank you for that. And thanks for spending the time with me today. Uh, This is our inaugural uh, show. So uh, we're very excited and hopefully we can uh, produce more of them and uh, come back and talk again. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Reed. You have been listening to Hang Time, a podcast about wine brought to you by the education team at St. Michelle Wine Estates. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this podcast or any of our wines, please drop us a line at wineed, wine-ed at smwe.com. Now go use what you have learned. Help you, it will.